Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 15th day of February, 2009. I'd like to encourage all of my listeners once again to look into the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com where you can stay up to date with all of the articles, videos, and podcast episodes that The Corbett Report has produced in the past, as well as our interviews. And just as a hint, I'd like to ask my listeners to keep their eye on the Interviews tab of the CorbettReport.com homepage this week, as we have some very interesting interviews scheduled and lined up for this week. Or, of course, you can always subscribe to our Interviews RSS feed for free by hitting the subscribe button on CorbettReport.com where you can subscribe to all of our RSS feeds for free and, of course, get our interviews delivered directly to your music player as new interviews are uploaded. Of course, you should also keep your eye on AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, where part two of the AlQaedaDoesn'tExist documentary is getting ever closer to being released. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Our first real news story this week comes from the Washington Post, February 8th, 2009. Obama's NSC will get new power. Directive expands makeup and role of security body. President Obama plans to order a sweeping overhaul of the National Security Council, expanding its membership and increasing its authority to set strategy across a wide spectrum of international and domestic issues. The result will be a dramatically different NSC from that of the Bush administration or any of its predecessors since the forum was established after World War II to advise the president on diplomatic and military matters, according to National Security Advisor James L. Jones, who described the changes in an interview. The world that we live in has changed so dramatically in this decade that organizations that were created to meet a certain set of criteria no longer are terribly useful, he said. The whole concept of what constitutes the membership of the national security community, which historically has been, let's face it, the Defense Department, the NSC itself, and a little bit of the State Department, to the exclusion perhaps of the Energy Department, Commerce Department, and Treasury, all the law enforcement agencies, the Drug Enforcement Administration, all of those things, especially in the moment we're currently in, has got to embrace a broader membership, he said. New NSC directorates will deal with such department-spanning 21st century issues as cybersecurity, energy, climate change, nation-building, and infrastructure. Many of the functions of the Homeland Security Council, established as a separate White House entity by President Bush after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, may be subsumed into the expanded NSC, although it is still undetermined whether elements of the HSC will remain as a separate body within the White House. Over the next 50 days, John O. Brennan, a CIA veteran who serves as presidential advisor for counterterrorism and homeland security and is Jones's deputy, will review options for the Homeland Council, including its responsibility for preparing for and responding to natural and terrorism-related domestic disasters. In a separate interview, Brennan described his task as a systems engineering challenge to avoid overlap with the new NSC while ensuring that 
Homeland Security matters, broadly defined, are going to get the attention they need from the White House. Today's second real news story comes from the Times Online, February 1st, 2009. Two children should be limit, says Green Guru. Couples who have more than two children are being irresponsible by creating an unbearable burden on the environment, the government's green advisor has warned. Jonathan Porritt, who chairs the government's Sustainable Development Commission, says curbing population growth through contraception and abortion must be at the heart of policies to fight global warming. He says political leaders and green campaigners should stop dodging the issue of environmental harm caused by an expanding population. I am unapologetic about asking people to connect up their own responsibility for their total environmental footprint and how they decide to procreate and how many children they think are appropriate, Porritt said. I think we will work our way towards a position that says that having more than two children is irresponsible. It is the ghost at the table. We have all these big issues that everybody is looking at, and then you don't really hear anyone say the P word. The Optimum Population Trust a campaign group of which Porritt is a patron, says each baby born in Britain will, during his or her lifetime, burn carbon roughly equivalent to two and a half acres of old-growth oak woodland, an area the size of Trafalgar Square. This week's final real news story comes from The Sundry Shack, February 12, 2009. Pray your members of Congress took speed-reading lessons. It is now 7 p.m., and the Democrats in Congress have yet to give their Republican counterparts a copy of the final stimulus bill for them to read. Steny Hoyer says that the House is going to move toward a vote starting at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Today's version of the bill clocks in at 1,434 pages, and that's not the final version. What Congress will likely vote on tomorrow, because President Obama has practically demanded that he sign it on Monday, is likely going to be larger. There is no chance in the world that any member of Congress is going to be able to read the bill by morning unless they are a trained speed reader. Even then, they're not going to know the full ramifications of what the bill contains. I'll do some back-of-the-envelope calculations to prove it. Let's start with two generous assumptions. That the bill remains at 1,434 pages, and it gets in the hands of your member of Congress at 8 p.m., Let's also assume that there are about 350 words on each page. In order for anyone to read the entire bill in 13 hours, they'd have to start the very minute they got it and read over 1.8 pages a minute, every minute, without a break. They'll be clocking in at a reading speed of 640.5 words per minute at that rate. If anyone needs a potty break, they'd better take the bill with them. Forget eating. By comparison, the average human reads about 200 to 400 words per minute, if reading for comprehension. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 74 of the Corbett Report, The Inbred Elite's Million-Year Plan. Now, if you've been keeping your eye on the news over the past week, you'll have noticed that February 12th marked the 200th birthday of both Charles Darwin and Abraham Lincoln. 
Accordingly, a spate of glowing celebrations of both men's life have appeared in the media over the past week. And as examples of that, I'll include in the documentation list for today's episode a link to the Minnesota Atheists podcast, where you can listen to a celebration of Charles Darwin's thought, and also a link to a YouTube video in which you can see Barack Obama talking about the significance of both Lincoln and Darwin. But I think the general tenor of the types of celebrations and revisionist history involved in these media stories can be garnered from this article from BBC News from January 29th, 2009, Darwin's Twin Track, Evolution and Emancipation. Quote, What drove Charles Darwin to his extraordinary ideas on evolution and human origins? Adrian Desmond, with co-author James Moore, argue in a new book that the great scientist had a sacred cause— the abolition of slavery. It makes one's blood boil, said Charles Darwin. Not much outraged the gentle recluse, but the horrors of slavery could cost him a night's sleep. He was thinking of the whipped houseboy and the thumbscrews used by old ladies in South America, atrocities he had witnessed on the Beagle voyage. The screams stayed with him for life, but how much did they influence his life's work? Today you can still read of Darwin's eureka moment when he saw the Galapagos finches. Alas, his conversion to evolution wasn't so simple, but it was much more interesting. It didn't occur in the Galapagos, but probably on his arrival home. And new evidence suggests that Darwin's unique approach to evolution, relating all races and species by common descent, could have been fostered by his anti-slavery beliefs. End quote. Well, that's certainly an example of a heartwarming and wonderful human interest story about a public hero and his benevolent philanthropic ways, which had hitherto been neglected in the historical record, but which thankfully are now coming out in time for his 200th birthday so we can all properly celebrate what a wonderful and charming man Charles Darwin really was. Befitting, of course, someone who is lauded almost universally as a scientific hero. But what if that reading of Darwin was in fact exactly opposite to what Darwin himself wrote, believed, and acted upon in his own life? Now, of course, I'm not here to get involved in a religious debate or to bring up questions about the science of evolution, but I am here to question, as always, the mindless praise of an individual about whom very few people have troubled their preconceptions to actually read. So, to begin getting a flavor of exactly where I'm coming from in today's episode, and to begin getting a handle on the very enigmatic title for today's episode, I'd like to take a listen to an interview with John Taylor Gatto, who we listened to in last week's episode of The Corbett Report. Now, as you'll remember, John Taylor Gatto is one of the world's most articulate and informed speakers on the issue of school reform, and in an interview that he gave with Tom Heck of TeachMeTeamwork.com back in 2006, he had this to say about the significance of Darwin for the schooling system and on the corporate mentality of the corporate robber barons of the United States. Uh, after the Civil War, two things happened. Uh, the rise of fossil fuel in connection with machinery and the the perfection of the steel making process 
led to a position where far-sighted people like John D. Rockefeller or Vincent Astor or Andrew Carnegie, probably another two dozen and, and a few hundred more of their flunkies, could see that the problem of production had been solved. The thing that had plagued every society in human history had been solved. Unfortunately, the United States had this habit. It was already uh, being solved in Germany, in England, to some extent in France, by employing people as machine parts in conjunction with uh, coal or oil uh, fuel-driven machinery, you could now produce unlimited uh, amounts of stuff, power. But the United States had this tradition, probably best understood by from a speech given by Abraham Lincoln in 1859 to the Wisconsin Agricultural Association. Excuse me for hesitating, but I've reached an age where I have to punch buttons in my head and hope that the stuff comes out. Uh, Lincoln said in 1859 to the Wisconsin Agricultural Association that the British had invaded the United States and were financing our move westward. But to do so, they were bringing in the corporate ideal, and they were saying that it's, it, it's not economical to waste resources or worry on on the people who run these machines. That Darwin had already established, here's the main reason that Darwin's taught in every school in the world, that, that Darwin had already established that only a few people were evolving. And that's true. Of course, you have to actually read what he wrote rather than what a school tells you that he wrote. Only a few were evolving, and all the rest of the people on Earth were evolutionary dead ends. And if they were to corrupt the evolving fraction, that evolution would march backwards. If, if, if people are the slightest bit dubious, you want to pick up a book that I guarantee you will be in every library in the United States called Descent of Man, published here in 1871 and kept continuously in print. And if you happen to have any Irish in your background, I guarantee you that your impulse will be to get down to your local public school and demand that Darwin be thrown out of the library because he says the Irish are, are biologically corrupted and they will cause evolution to march backwards <laughs> if the good stuff that was no, more no, than I Irish, but, but he saved his particular <laughs> wit for the Irish. And, and now, just uh, we started down this path because I wanted to know how I. I'm, but okay. I'm giving you the justification for doing this the way it's done. Okay. If you start with an attitude that most people are evolutionary retards. Anything you can do to protect uh, the biologically advanced material, anything you can do is quite morally uh, acceptable 
you're furthering the cause of uh, the improvement of the human race. Now, this this sounds like sort of a X factor, you know, the TV series of like a dark secret happening. The problem with not understanding how these things got to be the way they are is that all reform ends up being futile, Tom, because it will have to be done over and over again. This template will restore itself the minute that the that the furor, the social furor about school reform dies down. I mean, we've had seven major school reforms in the last 100 years, and every one of them ended up with school being larger, more expensive, and more in command of the time of the young. And there are powerful reasons for this. Okay. Uh, so... So now what what you've given the, let me say, the managerial class uh, of the new corporations is a mandate to not only in, in, enrich the corporation, which is capitalist theory, that's okay, but but in fact to help the human race by by eliminating the possible... Uh, obstacle that you know the, the biologically unfortunate will cause. Mm-hmm. Every one of the major corporate heads in the turn of the century was a committed Darwinist, and what that means is not that they said, "Oh, now we know how from single-celled animals." No, it means that they they finally had a purpose. They had given up the purpose of being God's children. Okay, but then what do you do with your time if you have everything? You've got to have some, what is the the newest hot, hot underground book, Purpose Driven Life. Yeah, right. And what is, what is a purpose that's worthy of Andrew Carnegie? turning his attention to it. Well, improving the human race. That ought to be on a scale with the United States deal. Ah, I see. This all seems to tie back into eugenics, that pseudo-scientific creed that we've looked at in previous episodes of the Corbett Report, including most notably episode 28, which is often regarded as a Nazi philosophy of the superiority of the Aryan race, but as we've demonstrated in previous episodes was in fact a philosophy and a pseudoscience that was started in England and heavily funded and promoted by the very robber barons that John Taylor Gatto was referring to, including, of course, the Rockefellers. But of course, as any basic introduction to eugenics will tell you, like the one on wikipedia.org, eugenics was actually first coined and used by Sir Francis Galton in the 1880s, of course drawing on the work of his cousin, Charles Darwin, but not a viewpoint officially endorsed or held by Charles Darwin, right? Well, wrong. As John Taylor Gatto alluded to in that interview, if one bothered to trouble one's preconceptions about what Charles Darwin believed, thought, or wrote by actually reading Charles Darwin, it wouldn't take long before you realized that, in fact, Darwin was at the very least a proto-eugenicist and espoused some rather surprising thoughts in his writings. From The Descent of Man... 
from Chapter 5 of Part 1 on the development of the intellectual and moral faculties during primeval and civilized times. The following. Quote, A most important obstacle in civilized countries to an increase in the number of men of a superior class has been strongly insisted on by Mr. Gregg and Mr. Galton, namely, the fact that the very poor and reckless, who are often degraded by vice, almost invariably marry early, whilst the careful and frugal, who are generally otherwise virtuous, marry late in life, so that they may be able to support themselves and their children in comfort. Those who marry early produce within a given period not only a greater number of generations, but, as shown by Dr. Duncan, they produce many more children. The children, moreover, that are born by mothers during the prime of life are heavier and larger, and therefore probably more vigorous than those born at other periods. Thus the reckless, degraded, and often vicious members of society tend to increase at a quicker rate than the provident and generally virtuous members. Or, as Mr. Gregg puts the case, the careless, squalid, unaspiring Irishman multiplies like rabbits. The frugal, foreseeing, self-respecting, ambitious Scot, stirred in his morality, spiritual in his faith, sagacious and disciplined in his intelligence, passes his best years in struggle and in celibacy, marries late, and leaves few behind him. Given land originally peopled by a thousand Saxons and a thousand Celts, and in a dozen generations, five-sixths of the population would be Celts, but five-sixths of the property, of the power, of the intellect, would belong to the one-sixth of Saxons that remained. In the eternal struggle for existence, it would be the inferior and less favored race that had prevailed, and prevailed by virtue not of its good qualities, but of its faults. End quote. Now, of course, some defenders of Charles Darwin go to great intellectual lengths to defend such passages by saying, for example, that the operative part of that passage talking about the Irishman is in fact part of a lengthy quotation and does not actually reflect the views of Charles Darwin leading one to wonder why he put it in his great work, uh, even after apparently Irishmen had written to him complaining about that passage, and he decided to keep it in future editions of the book. But regardless, I think once you have read Chapter 5, Part 1 of The Descent of Man for yourself in its entirety, and of course I'll put a link in the documentation section of today's episode, you will be forced to conclude that in fact, yes, Charles Darwin didn't hold very proto-eugenicist-type views, which were then fleshed out further by his cousin, Sir Francis Galton. But of course, for those who continue to suggest that our popular conception of Charles Darwin as some sort of scientific folk hero can't possibly be mistaken, and that, in fact, the conception that he is a eugenicist must therefore be mistaken, well, perhaps further proof comes from the very life of Darwin himself. The scientific rationale for tyranny has always been attractive to elites because it creates a convenient excuse for treating their fellow man as lower than animals. Robert Thomas Malthus, famous for saying that a mass food collapse would be helpful because it would wipe out the poor. His fictional scenario would later be called a Malthusian catastrophe. Malthus is important because his ideas led to the rise of a new scientific field that would dominate the course of human history 
for the next 200 plus years. Charles Darwin, an admirer of the Malthusian catastrophe model, developed the theory of evolution, its chief tenet being the survival of the fittest. With the help of T.H. Huxley, known as Darwin's bulldog for his strong support of Darwin's theories, Darwin's theories were pushed into wide acceptance among key scientific circles throughout England and then the world. Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, credited as the father of eugenics, saw an opportunity to advance mankind by taking the reins of Darwin's evolution theory and applied social principles to develop social Darwinism. The families, Darwin, Galton, Huxley, and Wedgwood were so obsessed with their new social design theory that they pledged their families would only breed with each other. They falsely predicted that within only a few generations, they would produce supermen. The emerging pseudoscience was only codifying the practice of inbreeding, already popular within elites for millennia. The four families experiment was a disaster. Within only two generations of inbreeding, close to 90% of their offspring either died at birth or were seriously mentally or physically handicapped. The moneyed class of the planet, and particularly the royal families of the world, who were already obsessed with breeding and filled with a predatory disdain for the underclass, seized on the new science and began aggressively enforcing its aims worldwide. That passage, of course, comes from Alex Jones's Endgame, one of the definitive documentaries discussing the rise of eugenics in the late 19th, early 20th century, its discreditation at the hands of the Nazis in 1930s and 1940s Germany, and its eventual need to go underground in the form of crypto-eugenics, a.k.a. transhumanism. But for those who are looking for more information on this extremely bizarre facet of Darwin's personal life... You could always turn to a article that appeared in the November 2005 volume of Natural History entitled Good Breeding, Darwin Doubted His Own Family's Fitness. Quote, Brought up in a provincial market town, Charles Darwin lived for 40 years in rural Kent, where he raised a large family. The English countryside was his natural habitat, a world of gentlemen farmers devoted to breeding livestock, flowers, fruit, and people. His paternal grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was a noted horticulturalist, and his maternal grandfather, Josiah Wedgwood I, who raised sheep, improved the flocks with hundreds of merinos. It is a beautiful part of my theory, Charles jotted when developing his ideas on evolution, that domesticated races are made by precisely the same means as species. Breeders decided which animals mate and which offspring survive. This was artificial selection. Nature, in Darwin's view, did the same thing through the struggle for existence. He called it natural selection. Ironically, some of the problems caused by inbreeding, which Darwin had heard about from farmers, threatened to play out in his own family. In 1839, as he turned 30, did Charles select well in choosing a mate? His betrothed, Emma Wedgwood, was his first cousin. The Darwin and Wedgwood families had intermarried for some time. I call them the Darwoods for short. Charles's grandfather, Josiah, had eight children with his third cousin, Sarah. Their eldest daughter, Susanna, married Robert Darwin, a noted physician. Charles was the fifth of Robert and Susanna's six children. 
Josiah and Sarah's second eldest son, Josiah II, fathered nine children, four of whom, Emma Wedgwood Darwin among them, married first cousins. From our vantage point long after Darwin's death, the results of this unintended experiment in close cousin breeding are striking. Twenty-six children were born from these first cousin marriages, yet nineteen of the offspring did not reproduce. Five died prematurely, five were unmarried and considered somehow deficient, and nine married without issue. Indeed, among the 62 aunts, uncles, and cousins in the four generations founded by Josiah I and Sarah Wedgwood, 38 remained childless. Just as Britain's population was booming, the fertility of Darwin's and Wedgwood's seemed to be falling. When Charles's mixed Darwood blood was added to Emma's pure Wedgwood, how would their children turn out? Darwin observed them tenderly, but with a breeder's eye, starting with Willie my little animalcule of a son, and his first daughter, Annie. A third child, Mary, died shortly after her birth, but other healthy babies followed. Henrietta, George, Elizabeth, Francis, and Leonard. Then the eldest girl, Annie, fell ill in 1850. She died a year later, soon after her 10th birthday. Another son, Horace, was born in 1851. Darwin was devastated by Annie's death, fearing she had inherited the wretched illness that had plagued him since the Beagle voyage. Historians now think Annie died of tuberculosis while Darwin was infected by a blood parasite he had acquired in the tropics. As the other children reached the age at which Annie had become sick, he watched them anxiously. My dread is hereditary ill health, he confided in a letter. Even death is better for them. He found what he feared. Elizabeth shivers and makes extraordinary grimaces. At age 10, she developed a weak, irregular pulse. Henrietta had similar symptoms at age 13 and took to her bed for years. George's irregular pulse at age 8 pointed to some deep flaw in his constitution, his father assumed, and he spotted the same symptom at the same age in Leonard. As the children failed, or appeared to fail, one after another, Darwin began experimenting with pigeons. He bought fancy varieties and worked out their family tree. He observed the checks to determine the age at which slight differences appear that breeders could select or nature could exploit. Those variations, as Darwin wrote in The Origin of Species, usually arose at a corresponding age in the offspring and parent, but he knew of cases in which flaws appeared at an earlier age in the child. The evidence of the latter lived at home. His own condition had set in at about age 30, the children's as adolescence approached, seemingly like clockwork. In 1856, the Darwin's tenth and final child arrived with its full share of intelligence. Baby Charles never began to talk. He shivered and grimaced and died within two years. But the evidence that the family was blighted already seemed abundantly clear. In 1862, when Horace broke down at age 11, with shuddering and gasping and hysterical sobbing, his father felt he knew the cause. It was a serious form of inheritance from my poor constitution. Now, to clinch the diagnosis, all he needed was quantitative proof that inbreeding was bad, evidence from more than his own ten offspring. End quote. Somehow, I bet you'll never read about that in BBC News articles about our hero Charles Darwin, 
Just as you'll never read, for instance, in a biography of Newton, how Newton was absolutely obsessed with alchemy and devoted the vast majority of his entire scientific career to the f discovery of how to turn base metals into gold, and some of the bizarre notebooks that he kept in that pursuit. I'll leave you to look into that for yourself, and I'll give you some links in the documentation section for today's episode if you're interested. But suffice it to say, there is usually more to the story than meets the eye, and certainly this is one such case. So where do we go from here? How do we follow this line of thought into our present day? Well, let's follow the line in a quite straightforward sense from the grandfather to the grandson. One of the fruits, you could say, of the grand Darwin-Wedgwood-Galton inbreeding experiment to Charles Darwin's grandson, Charles Galton Darwin. For a brief introduction to Charles Galton Darwin, I turn to knowledgedrivenrevolution.com, which in March of last year ran a five-part article series examining one of Charles Galton Darwin's works. From that article, quote, Is it possible to domesticate humanity as a whole? Would we need a wild master race to watch over us? Charles Galton Darwin, in his 1952 book, The Next Million Years, attempts to answer these questions. In this book, C.G. Darwin attempts to give a general outline of the future history of mankind. He was an English physicist and grandson of Charles Darwin, of evolutionary fame. Despite being concerned about the overpopulation of the world, he had four sons and one daughter with his wife, Catherine Pember. The hypocrisy of this may seem odd, but the concern about overpopulation only refers to inferior breeds of humans, and not superior breeds like himself and his lineage. C.G. Darwin was a longtime member and eventual president of the Eugenics Society from 1953 to 1959, which represented the belief system held among many of the political, scientific, and aristocratic elites of his day and the present. End quote. Now, I'll put a link up in the documentation section for today's episode to the entire five-part Knowledge-Driven Revolution article, and I do suggest that you read it in its entirety. But right now, let's turn to part two of that five-part article called Can Mankind Be Domesticated?, which contains the following quotes from Charles Galton Darwin's 1952 book, The Next Million Years. Quote, the only imaginable way of overcoming these difficulties would be to set up a class of consultants who would prescribe what marriages were eugenically admissible and how large the consequent families should be. But this does not solve the difficulty. It only pushes it back a stage, for it leaves unanswered the question who are to be the consultants and what principles are to guide them in settling the values of the different qualities of mankind. It comes back to just the difficulty I described in my fable, that a tame animal must have a master, and that therefore, though it might conceivably be possible to tame the majority of mankind, this could only be done by leaving untamed a minority of the population. Moreover, this minority would have to be the group possessing the most superior qualities of all. End quote. Continuing, quote, why cannot man set up a community like an ant's nest? This would be the ideal of the anarchist, and hitherto it has held no promise at all of success. 
but with the help of recent and probable future biological discoveries, some sort of imitation by man of the ant's nest cannot be quite excluded from consideration. Thus the control of the numbers of the two sexes may become possible, and with the knowledge of the various sexual hormones, it might also become possible to free the majority of mankind from the urgency of sexual impulse, so that they could live contented celibate lives, instead of the unsatisfied celibate lives that are the compulsory lot of such a large fraction of the present population of the world. If these discoveries should be made, and this is really by no means impossible, Man should be able to carry out the sex revolution, which is the typical characteristic of the insect civilizations. The detail would of course have to be quite different, for instead of one queen, there would have to be large numbers of fertile women to renew the population. Whereas there might be one king, literally the father of his country. End quote. And reading now from part four of the five-part series from KnowledgeDrivenRevolution.com and continuing with quotations from The Next Millionaires by Charles Galton Darwin, quote, Medical science might succeed in materially lengthening life without senility, though in a world of overcrowded population, it is not very clear what would be gained. Looking a little deeper, there is the possibility of substantially altering the intellectual and moral natures of individuals by some sort of hormonal injections. Already great effects have been produced in animals. Finally, as the most curious speculation of all, it is not quite impossible that it may one day be feasible to select in advance the sex of each child that is to be born. Whether this decision is made by the parents or by their rulers... This suggests that probability of a great unbalance in the population of the world. End quote. Once again, I could not suggest strongly enough that my listeners at the very least take a look at that five-part article series on knowledgedrivenrevolution.com and preferably actually go and read the next million years for themselves. But really now, let's get serious. Of course, maybe some people who were a bit deluded had these ideas at one time, talking about controlling the population by means of hormonal injections and the like, engineering society on a mass scale through the implementation of scientific programs designed to control and manipulate the percentage of males and females being born in society to make us more pliant and pliable to the technocratic elite who are ruling over us. I mean, let's be serious. This can't actually be happening, can it? Sounds like a B-movie. Millions of males vanish. Fact is, there aren't as many nowadays. Not human males, not frogs, not fish. Chemicals are moving us into period of the most rapid evolution of it that this species has ever experienced. From toys to shampoo, we're awash in strange new compounds, and we're only just learning that males are being hit hardest. The scientists within Health Canada are telling the government, listen, you really have to move on this. I'm Anne-Marie MacDonald. This Doc Zone asks, where have all the boys gone? signs. A growing body of evidence shows that something is wrong with the sexual health of human males. Sperm counts worldwide have been cut in half in the last 50 years. 
sperm abnormalities and rates of male infertility have radically increased. Rates of testicular cancer have doubled in the last 20 years. The question is, why? Scientists now believe that certain man-made chemicals are to blame. They interfere with the male hormonal system and are playing havoc with the basic building blocks of male sexual development. The problem is, these chemicals are everywhere. There was a time, not too long ago, when the Earth was a simpler place. Sixty years ago, synthetic chemicals were a futuristic novelty. Since that time, the chemical industry has developed more than 90,000 man-made compounds, and the vast majority of them have never been tested for their effects on human beings. During the last 50 years, we've learned how to create new chemicals and we've turned them loose. In the next 50, we may figure out what we've done. It's like in a certain way we're on the Titanic and we see the iceberg, but we just can't turn the ship. These chemicals are found in virtually every consumer product. Chemicals like bisphenol A make plastics hard and unbreakable. Other chemicals, called phthalates, make plastics soft and pliable. Chemicals make cosmetics smell fresh and fragrant. They make our fabrics stain-resistant and our computers flame-resistant. But have we unleashed a monster? Some common chemicals are causing profound and permanent damage to growing bodies. And for reasons we are just beginning to understand, some synthetic chemicals are far more damaging to boys. I feel that every child should be able to live up to their innate potential, whatever it may be. But we're taking that away from them. We're taking that away from our kids. Now, why isn't it being publicized? I think it's because it's so scary. Young adult men are also at risk. Sperm counts in college-age men have fallen dramatically in recent decades. A typical young man produces less than half of the sperm his father did, and up to 85% of it is abnormal. In a fertility clinic at the University of Rochester, researchers are tracking the crisis in the quality of male sperm. This change in the quality and amount of sperm has been sudden and dramatic. I've been here 12 years and when I first started, of the 10 donors we would screen, we would accept maybe seven or eight. They had really good counts, really good motility. Over time, it got harder and harder to recruit donors because we noticed of that same college-age population that of 10 people who would try out for our program, 
maybe three or four would have the sperm parameters that we need. The bottom line is that the World Health Organization standards for classifying a man as infertile have moved downwards. So for example, very early it was 60 million per milliliter, then down to 40 million per milliliter, now it's 20 million per milliliter, and they're talking about putting it down to 10, and that's because if a man goes in for a semen analysis, that you can't have too many of them classified as abnormal. That comes from a documentary that aired in 2008 on the CBC entitled The Disappearing Male and dealing obviously with the very real possibility that chemical pollutants that are used in modern industrial processes are literally engineering our species to become more effeminate. Again, this is a startling, shocking documentary and really does contain a lot of very fascinating scientific history of this problem. So I would recommend that people check it out for themselves. And of course, I'll post the link to the documentary in the documentation section for today's episode so you can check it out for yourself in its entirety. And it is worth checking out. Although, of course, ultimately the documentary takes the safe way out by suggesting that the companies didn't know what they were doing when they put these estrogen-mimicking endocrine system-altering compounds in the plastics and other goods that we handle on a daily basis. Even though, as the documentary admits, bisphenol A, which we've mentioned before on the corporate report and which is an estrogen-mimicking compound that just happened to find its way into numerous plastics, including the plastics used to make baby bottles and other such products, was in fact tested in the 1930s as a possible estrogen-mimicking compound to be used as hormonal therapy, but was ultimately abandoned for that and eventually somehow, after that point, found its way into our plastics. But again, again, it was all coincidence, and now it's just a question of companies trying to cover themselves as they try to cover up the facts. Nothing to see here. Move along. It's just another case of big companies being a little bit too greedy and not really checking out their facts before they sold us a bill of goods. Of course, the other possibility is that when the technocratic elite who head the eugenics society and are descended from Charles Darwin write in their books like The Next Million Years that they want to engineer society by using hormonal injections in order to determine the ratio of females and females in our society so that they can more easily control us, they might actually be serious. For more on that perspective, let's turn to a real researcher and a man who my listeners should need no introduction to, Mr. Alan Watt, whose voluminous knowledge and experience can be accessed at cuttingthroughthematrix.com, and once again, I would suggest my listeners support him and his work by either making a donation to him or buying some of his books or videos. But right now, let's listen to the November 13th, 2008 edition of his radio broadcast, Cutting Through the Matrix, in which he addresses this very topic. We are, as I say, certainly on a roll towards this brave new world scenario, which to most people will be just the outcome of bungling and incompetence, etc. That's how it's always projected to the public, and that's the reasons we're told why decisions are suddenly made. And the reality is no decisions are suddenly made. In fact, nothing is a surprise at the top. You don't pay thousands of think tanks big, big money to make mistakes. But I've gone on about 
the dwindling male population in the last few weeks. And I've been showing you how it ties in with the agenda. And it all comes out startlingly, of course, as always, presented to the public as though it's a sudden discovery, even though they've known for 50 years that basically the male sperm count has been plummeting. It's incidental, too, of course, that big players like Charles Galt and Darwin, who was a physicist of the famous Darwin family lineage, came out with his book, The Next Million Years, in 1956, I think it was. And it was acclaimed as a bestseller and a must-be book for the elite, speaking on behalf of the elite, because his whole, his whole basically theory was to eradicate the lower classes who had no purpose in a post-industrial society and the fear of himself and the elite whom he represented was that the, the lower classes would outbreed uh, the, the better gene types the, the ones who'd practiced good eugenics for centuries like himself and that's a fact if you look into the Darwin family and the Galton family and in his book he, he talked about the necessity to bring this global system in because they had it all projected way back then and long before they'd bring in a global society based on the British Empire he said that the biggest opposition would come from males mainly Caucasian males and they'd have to effeminize the males and get them out of the way to bring this agenda through and he advocated ways of basically giving the males extra estrogen the female hormone through various and every possible means possible that it was in their water even in the milk of babies and injections would be used too to target the endocrine system of the male well I've read articles this last week or so a couple of weeks on this very very thing suddenly they're saying my god there's not enough men getting born there's a lot of stillbirths there's a lot of problems cropping up and they just don't know what to do about it and again it dovetails right in to this new transhumanist movement and post-humanist movement that again suddenly sprung up well funded by millions and millions of dollars and headed by big professional people and I'm going to continue with this and more information after the following break Once again, please support Alan Watt at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and please follow the link from the documentation section of today's episode so you can listen to that entire episode of Cutting Through the Matrix because it does deal at great length with this subject and goes into more of the history about population control and mass human engineering. That social engineering on such a scale, indeed species engineering, could be going on is indeed difficult to understand and comprehend and accept, but nevertheless the evidence is right before us. With an understanding of who the heroes in our society really are, what they really thought, what they really wrote, and what they really represented, we can have a better understanding of what's happening around us, and we can more easily read between the lines of the stories which we are fed in the daily news media. Once again, this is a quiet war which is being waged around us and is being waged by enemies that we do not even know how to name. 
Knowing and understanding what is happening is the first step, and discovering who is behind it is the next. Once again, I invite my listeners not to take anything that they hear, see, or read at face value, including, of course, this podcast, and I encourage and exhort each and every one of my listeners to become an active participant by taking up the mantle and taking this research up for yourself. There are, of course, many more ways in which this is manifested in our daily lives, and of course we will continue to cover this extremely important facet of the New World Order in the Corbett Report podcast. That's all for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for this episode, and join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. Whether it's the science to slow global warming, the technology to protect our troops and confront bioterror and weapons of mass destruction, today more than ever before, science holds the key to our survival as a planet and our security and prosperity as a nation.